Shalom. Thank you for listening to this podcast of the Jayberg Wilk Learning Series. I am Shmuley Yanklowitz, President and Dean of Valley Beit Midrash. Here at VBM, we strive to bring you only the highest quality of Jewish learning. Bringing pluralistic and innovative Jewish programming to the Jewish community that craves substance and insight is our passion. But we cannot do it alone. To support our endeavors, please consider donating a tax-deductible contribution to our organization. By doing so, you will be supporting meaningful Jewish educational content, funding the next generation of leaders, as well as furthering Jewish wisdom to people all over the country and all over the world. Please visit www.valleybatemadrash.org. Thank you so much and enjoy the program. About. I, I, I imagine that it's very hard in this community, as it is certainly in my community as a suburb of, uh, of Washington, D.C., to avoid conversations about politics and leadership. And while we're not going into the current landscape or any particular figure, what I wanted to point out is how much the Bible was sensitive to issues of power and its abuse. And so what I want to do is use an ancient story and before we go further, I want to use an ancient story also for the, the rise of the soul of Dr. Sherman um, and want to make sure that he's honored by our learning. We have a tradition that when we study together, th- that we bring the soul into the room. So I, I, I just want to bring him into the space with us. Um, <laughs> we're all going to meet. We're all going to meet one day. Um, so the, the place I want to start is a fascinating piece of text. I call it the only Zeusian part of the Torah, meaning that it sounds like it's straight out of a Dr. Zeus book, like the Lorax, right? And it was, it's, just, it's just something is very stunning, and I'm going to give you the context of the story of the parable only once we've studied it together. Um, just for the sake of sound, uh, I, I'll read. Normally I'd have you read, but I, I think that the, we're going to compete a little bit with the air conditioning. Can everybody hear me clearly? Okay, so we're going to be in the book of uh, Shoftim, the book of, uh, the book of Judges. It was a very tense time. We went from judge to judge, leader to leader. And you can make all of your relevant connections. And smack in the middle, it's a 21-chapter book. In chapter 9, we've got this parable. So if you're following with me, we're right smack in the middle where it says 8. One, day's the tree, one day the trees went out to anoint a king for themselves. They said to the olive tree, be our king. So what's going on here? There's a group of trees. They want a tree leader, and they go to the olive tree. Now, I imagine most of you have seen olive trees. I I think olive trees grow here in Phoenix, right? So you probably know them better than most. Why would you go to an olive tree? Of all the trees you could pick, why an olive tree first? Provides oil, provides olives. Provides shade, oil. I'm sorry, what's your name? I met Judy. Okay, so provides oil, and oil has both sacramental purposes and also nutritional purposes, right? Domestic purposes. So, uh, you know, that seems to to fulfill a lot of that. What else do we know about the the tree itself, how the tree looks? Hmm? It's a hardy tree. It lasts for a long time. So if you've been going from leader to leader... You want your next leader to have some stability. And not only that, when you look at it, certainly if you've looked at Anna Tijo's lovely poster of an olive tree, it's just wizened. It's, it's just this beautiful uh, tree that seems to be somewhat majestic. 
And in fact, what I learned when I went to the biblical gardens of Israel, has anyone else been to know Kadumim, the biblical gardens of Israel? Thank you. What's your name? Joel. Joel is getting a prize. And Joel is leading the next trip to Israel where we're all getting out. Okay? You got to get out there. You've been into the Anatikal House, so you saw the poster. Uh, look at you, Joel. Um, <laughs> so it's one of my all-time favorite places, especially when you when you teach Torah. There's a lot of flora and fauna, and if you don't understand them, it's hard to it's hard to unpack the story. So one of the things that I learned is that the olive tree, this, there's saplings that that grow all around the tree, right? These little shoots, and it almost looks like a king in his court, or uh, or a queen in her court or a scholar and students. So you go to the olive tree first. All right, let's see what's going to happen. So you go to the olive tree, be our king. But the olive tree answered, should I give up my oil? As Malin pointed out, it's oil. Should I give up my oil? By which gods and men ah, are honored to hold sway over the trees. So what's the olive tree saying? He's going to do the job or not? Nothing doing. He's questioning it. He's questioning it, right? And he's questioning it from a rhetorical perspective. So why does he not want this job? He's doing something worthy now. What is the implication about leadership? Why should I give up all the good things that I'm doing to do something which might not be so productive or sacred or any of these things, right, or needed? Let's go to the next. So this is a terrible nominating committee because they don't try to convince you to do the job. If you've ever been in a Jewish organization, this would never happen, right? Someone would be like begging you, holding on to your ankles, saying, I'm not going to leave until you say yes. So they go next to the fig tree, and they say, come be our king. So you're the fig tree. Fig tree, as we know from early on in, uh, in, this, in Genesis, fig tree has leaves. I, I, my neighbor had a fig tree, had very large leaves, in case any of you were worried about Adam and Eve. So the, they go to the fig tree, and the fig tree replies, so we're in verse 11, should I give up my fruit, good and sweet, to hold sway over the trees? So why not lead in this instance? What is the implication about leadership for the fig? Well, I think one issue with both of them may be that the olive tree knows a lot about creating oil. Mm. And the olive tree is good at creating oil and knows it. And the fig tree knows about creating fruit. Mm. But they're being asked to do something that they may not know how right. to do. Uh, we've all seen situations where certain people were elevated to leadership because they've done something else and it's the right. wrong person yeah. in the wrong place and it's a disaster. Yeah, and that's a great analysis. So, you know, I, There's a leadership book called What Got You Here Won't Get You There, right? So each of these uh, trees will have a specific expertise, so to speak, and perhaps not the expertise of leadership. But there are also implications here. When a tree says, I'm not giving up what I do, which is good and sweet, there's an implication that leadership is neither good nor sweet. How many of you have had a leadership role in the Jewish community or any community? Oh, you also have to get out more. Well, um, no, civic association, anything, right? So you know that when you take on this job, you want to serve, you want to help, you have ideas, and then you meet people. And as Jean-Paul Sartre said, hell is other people, right? So you're going to have to now manage all of these people who are going to be difficult, and they're not always going to be easy, and they're not going to necessarily move you in a direction. So someone says, I'm good and sweet the way I am. Who would want to give that up? 
everybody loves me just the way that I am. So let's go to the next. The tree said to the vine, sorry, the grapevine, come and be our king. But the vine answered, should I give up my wine, which cheers God and men to hold sway over the trees? So if any of the others thought that they were, you know, good where they are, the vine says, I have the best job. People, you know, grow me, they squeeze me out, they ferment me, and they get drunk, and they are happy, and they forget. And of course, it also has a sacramental purpose of being used in libations, right, at the temple, on the temple altar. So he says, I'm not doing this. And Okay, but he says, I'm not doing this because he doesn't want to hold sway over the trees. So all three of the trees say, we don't want to hold sway over the trees. What I need now is a volunteer. Who is going to volunteer for me? Come on, I came all the way from D.C. today. Five-hour flight. Someone's got to help me out. Ask again. I need a volunteer. I need one volunteer. Judy? A volunteer. For what? Okay, wait, we have an... Uh, okay, that's exactly your problem. Um, wait, what, what's your name? Okay, Randy, perfect. So... Yeah, sure. There's plenty of sources. Can I give you handouts? Okay, great. So Randy's going to help us out. She volunteered. She's the best kind of volunteer. She doesn't even know what it is, and she says yes. Very dangerous. Okay, Randy, I'd like you to stand up for me for a second. All right. I want you to imagine that you are a swaying tree, and I'd like you to sway for us. And everybody's going to watch Randy and think about... Why, the tr- why these trees are saying, we don't want to lead. Leading is like swaying over the trees. Go ahead. Very excellent. This is a first-time swayer. I didn't say swinger. I said swayer. Right? Okay. And she's happy. All right. So tell me something about leadership. Just stay there for a second, Randy. What, what image are these trees conjuring up about leadership when they say, I don't want to give up what I do to just sway over trees? Lanua alaitzim, as it says in Hebrew. This has got to be a criticism of leadership. So, how is what is swaying? It's bending. It's bending. Thank you. Going with the flow. We actually have a term for it in politics. It's called flip flopping, right? So, if I'm just going with the wind, right? I'm just going in any direction. Then I'm not. And there's something else. If I'm moving this way and I'm moving that way. Am I moving ahead? Am I going anywhere? Am I changing anything? No, I'm actually rooted in place, and I'm just swaying with the wind. Whatever you need me to say at any moment is what I'm going to say. But you're able to bend without breaking. But I'm able to bend without breaking, which is, which is a positive aspect. But for these trees, it's not positive enough. Yes, wait, your mic. Um, first of all, let's give Randy a hand. Excellent. I don't know if, if you've ever done that before, Randy. I mean, you look like a veteran. You look like you've done that before. Um, what's your name, sir? Uh, Herschel. Okay, Herschel. Um, there's also, in each one of these cases, the identifying of a separation from the thing that made them special. Yeah. Their rootedness, their, their value. Yeah. That to become a leader to them is to be separated from the thing that made them valuable in the first place. Correct. So... Although we can understand that each of them don't want to give up that specialness, that uniqueness that makes them who they are to lead, there's another side to this. If good trees don't lead, who is going to lead? In a vacuum, I'll stand up if that's a little bit easier. Um, In a vacuum, if no good leaders lead, then bad leaders step forward. 
Okay, they got nothing to lose. So let's look at what happens next. You can almost predict it. So right now, for those of us who, have, who have, for those who joined us, we're in the middle paragraph, and we're on verse 14. Finally, all the trees said to the thorn bush, "Come, be our king." Tell me what the thorn bush has. Thorns, prickly, could hurt people. Does it have shade? Think of the Roadrunner cartoons, which actually must be great in Phoenix. I don't know, right? Uh, this is like a natural territory, dry, right? So the, 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 the tumbleweed does not have shade. Does it have roots? No roots. Does it have fruit? No fruit. So in this leadership position, they're so desperate that rather than go back to the good leaders and say, we need your unique talents, they go to the thornbush who can give them nothing of what they want, and they say, come be our leader. Now watch what the thornbush says, because the thornbush is actually very calculating. The thornbush says, if you really want to anoint me king over you, in other words, I cannot believe that I'm in this election. If you really want me to be king over you, come and take refuge in my shade. But if not, then let fire come out of the thornbush and consume the cedars of Lebanon. So basically he's saying, first of all, he's lying. He's saying, come take refuge in my shade. We just determined that he doesn't have shade. He says, if you really want me, I want you to really think hard about this because I can't actually believe that you want me to take this role. If you want me, you need to know that it comes at a cost because if you stop wanting me, I'm going to destroy you. It mentions, he mentions the cedars of Lebanon. The cedar of Lebanon is the most important tree in the Bible. It was imported, obviously, from Lebanon. It was used in the building of the temple and also the building of Solomon's palace so, and, and David's palace before that. So the cedar of Lebanon, he says, you know what I'm going to do? Because all it takes is one bad leader. And I'm going to make leadership so awful that the best leaders will never want to lead. When I was a young girl, I remember, uh, and I'm, I'm sure that my parents weren't the only ones to say this to me, maybe one day you'll grow up to be president. And I think about my children and my grandchildren and I wouldn't wish them that upon them. And I'm angry at myself. And it's not, the, it's not that I'm less of a patriot. It's that I worry. I worry for the health and welfare of this country and what leadership looks like now. Tearing people apart, knowing everything that they do. It's just, it's, it's, it's a nightmare. So you understand that people don't want to lead. And that's true not only in the larger political landscape of this country and world over. It has to do with Jewish leadership. I know people who say... I don't want to be the president of a Jewish day school. I don't want to be the president of a JCC. I don't want to be the president of a synagogue. It's a nightmare. Everybody's coming over to you all the time. I have a friend who's president of a day school. He stopped going to the synagogue. He would, first he would just hide in the cloakroom for hours because he didn't want people, you know, why are you doing this? Why do you have this teacher? Why do you teach Spanish? Why do you do this? Why? And he just didn't he, didn't, he couldn't, he couldn't function that way. So you think to yourself, leadership comes at a toll. And the Thornbush understood this. But I want to read another interpretation of the thornbush's activities. I want you to turn to page three because I mentioned the biblical gardens and we're going to mention it again now. Noga Haruveni, who was the who created the um, whose both parents were Russian botanists, came, he came to they came to Israel, I believe, and he's their son. He wrote a book called Tree and Shrub in Our Biblical Heritage. Now, I may have been the only one to read and love this book, but I'm just going to recommend it. For those of you who are into trees and shrubs and Bible, it's fantastic. So he makes the case that this plant 
the atad, that's what it is in Hebrew, atad, was not the lyceum as commonly assumed because although it has many of the properties associated with the bramble, it does not easily catch fire or set fire to other plants. So here you have a botanist. The botanist looks at the story in the book of Judges and the botanist says, something's off here. This doesn't sound like a property of this particular tree and we use the same name. So he says, Dr. Ephraim Haruveni, who's his father, believes that it is a tree called the Zisiphus spinacristi. You don't have to memorize that. Which was brought to Israel by way of Africa. It's a large tree with shade and has widespread roots. Why is that important for our parable? For those of you just joining me, I'm sorry that you missed the beginning, so we'll try to catch on together. So the Sisyphus, it, it has shade. How is that important for our parable? What did we say that the thorn bush promised? Take refuge in my shade. So we thought it was the tumbleweed. It had no shade. But now we're learning, oh, if it's this other kind of tree, it has bountiful shade. Let's keep going. It's a large tree. It has widespread roots. Haruveni believes that were this parable told as an insult to the people's choice of leader, they would not have listened. Yotam, and we'll talk about him in a moment, had to pick a tree with presents. So it doesn't offer fruit, but if you're in a hot sun... You want the shade of a beautiful tree. Although the tree offers much shade and height, it is known to be harmful to fruit trees. Pay attention. Although the tree offers shade and height, right, it's harmful. Farmers had to eliminate them from fields if they wanted to create a fruit orchard since the atad had a choking effect. The trees were then commonly cut for kindling. So let's think about this. We thought, okay, the tumbleweed. Everybody knows that you're nothing. You have no roots. You have no shade. You have no fruit. You have no medicinal properties. You just have thorns. So you can't be a leader. But now this is a little bit harder to understand because the atad was a very graceful and beautiful tree. What was the problem? And you'll unpack this with me in our understanding of leadership today. What is the problem? What was it? It didn't create anything. It's killing everything. It was not only did it not have its own fruit, it, in the subterranean levels, it is choking everything. Now think about leadership, right? Think about leaders who have a very telegenic, let's say, presence. You don't even know what's going on underneath, right? All the schmutz, all the dirt, all the conniving, all the manipulating. And by the way, we're not talking about contemporary politics right now. We're talking about ancient politics. If you want to read an incredible analysis of the political situation in the Bible and the general anxiety connected with leadership in the Bible. Read, um, uh, Moshe Halbertown is a philosopher um, and legalist in Israel um, at Hebrew University. Uh, he co-wrote with a professor of law, uh, Stephen Holmes, a book called The Beginning of Politics. And he studies the book of Samuel, and it could have been written today, right? The idea that leaders do things and, they can't, and no one can trace it back to them because they have a number of people who work for them, and, they, and so you can never kind of fully assume responsibility. All kinds of things that happen that choke the life underneath. Now, if you choke the fruit trees, not only are you not providing fruit, but you're not letting anyone benefit from the fruit either. So now let me tell you why this parable is told. For those of you who joined us, we did a little kind of Zeusian parable of trees being asked to be leaders and all of them refusing, the fruit trees refusing and the thornbush accepts. The book of Judges takes place after Moses dies, who is a fantastic leader for 40 years. He has his troubled moments, but he has one mission. And the mission is what? 
What's Moses' mission? Get people to Israel. So if people say the Exodus, no, that was just the beginning, right? The whole trajectory was to get them across, even at the cost to himself, because he couldn't cross, right? So he can't cross, all the people cross, um, and he's, he's, he, he has done his mission. Then we get to Joshua. Joshua's mission is the conquest of Israel and the division of the land. He doesn't conquer everything, but he conquers most of the land, and the division takes place. Then we go from two magnificent, talented leaders to a series of leaders. Some stay for a verse or two, some get a chapter or two, some get five chapters. You've got a character like Samson. Samson is a very mysterious and strange leader, right? Because although he wants to lead, the Israelites don't like him. He falls in love with, um, with, Phil- with uh, 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 Philistine women. He's not your typical successful leader, right? He kills more Philistines in his death than in his life because he kind of pushes the pillars and, 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 and he's able to contribute that in terms of his leadership. But he has a very alienating relationship with the people. So right in the middle, we have a character um, and his, his name is Gidon and he dies. And uh, he dies and then his, he has 70 sons, not by one woman, Baruch Hashem, Right, he has many, many wives. He has one son, Avimelech, with one of his concubines. Children of concubines tend to have a lower status in the family dynamic, but this Avimelech wanted to maybe seek his revenge on his brothers. So he goes to the people of Shechem where his father ruled, and he says, pay careful attention. He says, people of Shechem, he says, you have no ruler. And you need a ruler. And it's better to be ruled by one person than by 70 people, because that's going to require a very big office. So he's making the case for hereditary leadership, although that's only for kings and priests. He's making the case, you know, hire me. And he says, because I'm your flesh and blood, which is one of the honestly worst reasons to hire anybody, right? We call it nepotism. But he says, you know, hire me. We know each other, and let me rule. So he then uses a Stalinist technique. He, um, he becomes leader. He uses the money that he's been given to hire a reckless uh, ministry. It says, Anashim pochazim v'reikim, empty and impulsive people. And um, then he says to his crew, he says, you know what? Everybody else could be threatening to my leadership. So he kills all of the other 68 contenders. Right? You know, that's, I, I don't watch Game of Thrones, but if you say so, I agree. So, uh, you know, they say of Stalin that he had a gift for recognizing talent and then eliminating it because you don't want that talent to compete with you. So Avimelech gets rid of everybody except one guy. How many people here are the youngest in the room? Youngest children? Only one? Youngest children. Okay. This is your moment to shine. This is your moment to shine. So the youngest, which is not uncommon in the Bible, the youngest uh, of the brothers, Yotam, or Jotham in English, basically runs and hides. And it's inauguration day. And he does the most incredible thing on inauguration day. He knows that Avimelech is corrupt, is an awful, will only bring sarot, will only bring disaster to the people of Shrem. So you know what he does? He goes on the opposite mountain of the inauguration. How many of you have been to a presidential inauguration in Washington? 
All right, so we have no Kadumim. We have the Biblical Gardens of Israel. We have inauguration in Washington. So I was at uh, I was at President Obama's first inauguration. Now, of course, it's easy for me because I'm only 16 miles from the White House. Um, but I decided I was going to go to work that day because I thought we'd all watch it on television. It was a pretty historic moment. We all watch it on television together. I get into work. There is not one person there. The receptionist is there, and she says, go home. I'm going home, right? No one's here. And, in fact... My kids, one kid slept over the night, brought a sleeping bag, slept over the night, and the other one left at 6 in the morning. And then, and then all of a sudden I said, I'm going to go. I was totally not dressed. I'm still defrosting. It was really freezing that day. But it was an incredible thing to be part of. Hundreds of people coming out of the metro at the same time. And everybody was just such a generous spirit. It was just, it was such an interesting thing. I, someone said, you don't have a hat. I have an extra hat. Here, take my hat. And you know what? I don't know if he had lice, but I took his hat. Right? Like, it was just like this, this just lovely moment. Um, and again, I'm speaking, I, I, I want to speak outside of a partisan context because inaugurations are always important no matter who, who gets elected. Inaugurations are important in, in the Washington, uh, Washington D.C. area. And I remember people holding up signs. I've come from Tennessee. I've come from California. I've come from Wisconsin. And one elderly black woman was holding up a sign, and it said... I've traveled 400 years to be here. See, I'm, I'm going to try not to tear up because it, was, uh, it still has that impact on me. But this idea of being in an inauguration at this moment of leadership and little schnippy Yotam goes on the opposite mountain where the inauguration is going to take place and he says, people of Shrem, listen to me. And he says this parable. Could you imagine? It's, it's such subversion. And he could risk his life to tell people Leadership is so important. I'm going to risk my life to try to save you from this fellow. Does it work? It doesn't work. Why doesn't it work? Even though he says it in a parable so it's not directly offensive. Because when people hire someone, when people elect someone, they want to justify their choices. And they're not willing to look at all the bad. They want the good. But Yotam, of course, in this story is right. The leadership fails on every aspect. And soon the people understand the leader that they have chosen and how corrupt he is and how he's exploiting them. And so you know what they do? They hire another guy, another guy who says, I'm going to beat that guy, and he's equally bad. And Avimelech says, you remember what he said? Hire me, elect me, and if you don't like me, what am I going to do? Those of you who are here first, you, you have to answer for everybody else, okay? I'm going to burn you. I'm going to destroy you. So sure enough... Avimelech goes to war with the new leader of Shrem, and he, he pushes everyone remaining who hasn't been killed into a building. He says to all of his soldiers, grab a, a branch, light it on fire, we're going to encircle this wooden building, and we'll burn everyone in it. And that is what he does. And chapter 9, which is a very lengthy chapter, says, and so the curse of Yotam took place. He knows he knew it. And the fact is, you know, I love this story because it's a parable and you can take it apart. I, I love the story because in some way, in very simple language, it predicts what's happened for millennia in terms of leadership. Right? We pick bad leaders. We'd rather, and, and in fact, my question, and I, I didn't ask this, uh, Harvard professor Barbara Kellerman asked this in her book, Bad Leadership. Why would we rather have bad leaders than no leaders? Why? So you tell me, why would we have, I want to make sure you understand, 
This class, I've been giving this class for about 15 years. It has nothing to do with any current politics. You can interpret it as you like. But I'm saying this is not a new pattern. This is a consistent pattern, and it has to do with Jewish leadership, and it has to do with office leadership, and it has to do with corporate leadership, and it has to do with political leadership. Why would we rather have bad leaders than no leaders? Yes, please. And you are? Oh, yes, you introduced yourself before. Thank you. Thank you. We, it, you know, it, it, it's easy enough to say, let someone else do it. And I'm going to blame you when you make your bad decisions. And so I don't want to take responsibility. I don't want to be accountable for this. But the, the biblical story here is, if good leaders don't rise to the occasion, if that fig and that olive and that, and that, and that vine say, I'm not doing it, go back and ask them again. And then go back and ask them again. And get thrown out and ask them again push them to say there's a nobility to leadership. There's something important that we have to do here. And if good people don't do it, then bad people, it's not only the bad people step in, it's that once you have enough bad leadership, the really good people never want to lead. Because that office gets that reputation, no one wants to touch it. And so I want to turn both outward and inward for a moment. Outward in terms of looking at the history of Western political thought. So what I want to share with you is that this issue of leadership came up, of course it came up, and every generation it comes up. It came up in particular in the 16th and 17th century um, it, because people were tired of oligarchies, they were tired of tyrants, and they wanted a constitutional monarchy, which means if I'm a king, I follow a set of rules, and the next king is going to follow a set of rules, and the previous king followed a set of rules. I'm not making up the rules every time as I go. Now, we're used to living in a constitutional, uh, you know, by a, by a constitution, but we take that for granted today. That was not always the case in history. So you have figures like Sidney Algernon and John Milton, who, in addition to all the other work that they're doing, are on this campaign for constitutional monarchies, okay? And I'll read you some of the, I, I, I put it in for you uh, on page four, on page four. Here's, here's Milton. Kings scarcely recognize themselves as mortals, scarcely understand that which, that which pertains to man, except on the day they are made king or on the day they die. When they're made king, they think, oh, I'm going to be a wonderful king. I'm going to lead. I'm going to do everything you need. And, uh, and yet they don't. And then the day they die, they realize that they're mortals. But in between that time, they think that they're immortal. And they think that they're the ultimate decision makers. And so, so, and Milton writes again, he talks again about the way that leaders corrupt leadership. And in fact, let's go back now to page three. James Kugel, an amazing scholar of Bible, who once, he, was, he used to be at Yale, and Marty Luxon, who is another, who was a visit, uh, Marty Luxon was at Yale, and, and, and James Kugel was uh, there for a semester as a visiting professor. So there was a Luxon and a Kugel the same semester at Yale. That is not an exaggeration. That is, that, that's what I heard. Okay. That's, it brought up the, right. It's delicious, right? Oh, amazing. I'm so happy to be in between the two. Okay. Um, look at what David Gunn says in his understanding, his discussion of Joshua and Judges. This is specifically about Judges. 
the tension between human craving for security and the insecurity risked by allegiance and obedience to an imageless and unfathomable divinity. The larger story, sorry, there's no verb there. The larger story holds out blueprints of security, a nation and a system of tribal affiliation, a land, institutions of leadership, a cult, only to undermine and fracture them by recounting their fragility, corruption, and irrelevance. What he's saying is, the Bible is really such an incredible document, and I wish we had hours of time to look at how leaders exploit. Because there's not one type of leader, whether you're a priest, a prophet, a king, or a chief, right, or a judge, there's not any version of leadership that is incorruptible. There are stories all over the Bible that tell you that leadership corrupts absolutely. And when you think about all the people who go into public service and they want to do good things, and something happens to them along the way. They, they, they have all these yes people. They, they, they garner power. They make decisions that are irrational. And I want you to see, because I quoted Halbertal, so I want to make a plug for his book. I get no commissions. On the bottom of three, in the beginning of politics, if the sovereign is powerful enough to protect the people against hostile neighbors, pay attention, he will also be powerful enough to abuse the people for reasons having nothing to do with collective security. The possibility that rules will betray the ruled is inherent to the nature of rule itself and may or may not be rooted in the psychology of those who inhabit high office. Scary. He's writing this about the book of Samuel, right? He's writing this about the book of Samuel, about, uh, about Saul and David. Yes? So have there been any studies or in the Bible between male leaders and female? Okay. So Randy asked a good question, and I have to answer because she swayed for me, and that's fair. Um, so there's only really research on gender-based leadership now. First of all, we don't have many. I mean, I, I wrote a book on Esther, so I'd like to say, uh, you know, that's coming out, I'd like to say that, you know, we have models, but we don't have conversations about the difference between those leaders, right? Um, very often, as in Esther's case, it's a package of Esther and Mordechai, who together make a team, uh, make a, a team of leaders. Um, and I'm actually, I'm actually quite critical of the research on gender-based leadership because I think women and men are so socialized to their roles that, and there's so many inequities that we can't really do real research yet. As we can do research when all CEOs, male and female, are paid the same. We can do research when... Um, when an equal number, I have to say my husband works for the NIH, Francis Collins, bless him, said he will no longer appear at conferences where the panels are not 50-50. Right? He was someone who said, I'm, I'm taking a stand on this. Right? He said, you know, this is not a principle of the NIH. This is my own personal decision. But he publicized it, and it created a wave, and it's an important wave. So I hope we continue that wave, and I hope... That whatever you're thinking, because I think I know what you're thinking, comes true. Okay. I, I, hope, I hope it's only 15. I hope it's tomorrow. I hope it's tomorrow. Um, for my sons and for my daughters. Not only for my daughters. Okay. So I want to get back to this point of constitutional monarchy. The only way you're going to get rid of abuses is if there are limitations. And in the world of the 16th century, there was only one document that traveled and was influential throughout the entire world, and it was the Hebrew Bible. It's interesting. It's the Bible. Uh, I shouldn't say only the Hebrew Bible, but the Hebrew Bible and the New Testament. And um, the, the, in Deuteronomy 17, there are limitations placed upon the king. The king can't have too many horses. 
can't have too many wives. By the way, how much is too many wives? <laughs> Husbands could say one. The, the Talmud and Maimonides codifies that it's 18. Okay, the king. <laughs> Good luck to you is all I have to say. Okay, as my Zaidi, I love Hashem, would say. Okay, so you've got not too many horses, not too many kings. Um, wait, I'm sorry. You have not too many horses, not too much money, not too many wives, because they'll turn your heart away from leadership. And you have to write a Sefer Torah, or a Torah has to be written for you, that you carry on your person, so that you never think you're above your brothers. It's very powerful. The Christian world was aflame with this. It's like these philosophers, these writers, these influencers basically said, we need to publicize this. Not only this, but in, in the book of Samuel in chapter 8, when the people want a king to be like everybody else, Samuel says, what do you want a king for? The king is going to take your daughters to be embroiderers and your sons to be charioteers. And he's, going to take, he's going to requisition your land and you'll come crying to me about the king that you wanted. And so what happened in, those, in that century, and I'll, I'll read it to you, is that, is that over 1,300 works that had to do with chapter 17 and Samuel, 8, uh, Samuel 1, 8 were actually translated, 1,300 works were translated from Hebrew into Latin. That is astounding. It's basically, we, and, and, and many people don't think this, don't realize that in many ways, our document, our, our values, were actually the foundation of modern Western political thought. Yay, us. Precisely because there was anxiety about abusive leadership. So let's read one more thing, and then our five minutes will be up. For roughly 100, this is on, this is Eric Nelson. Eric Nelson is a professor of history at Harvard. He wrote a book called The Hebrew Republic. It's a bit dense, but it is so wonderful. So we're in the middle of four. He says, for roughly 100 years from the time of Bertram until the time of Spinoza, European Protestants made the Hebrew Bible the measure of their politics. They believed that the same God who thundered from Sinai and who later sent his son into the world had revealed to Israel the form of a perfect republic. They labored with the help of their rabbinic authorities to interpret his design and attempted in their own societies to replicate it as close as possible. In the process, they made crucial contributions to the political thought of the modern world. I hope you feel good about being Jewish, because I feel good about it. We can't always prevent abuses to power. We understand that in some way, the fact that we have constitutions and constitutional monarchies today is because we have a Bible that said we got to limit power. And having said that, with the possible abuses, I want to invite each and every one of you to take a leadership role. And it might be in your family, and it might be in a local Jewish organization, and it might be in a nonprofit, and it might be in politics, because we need the good people in these roles. And those good people are sitting in this room. So thank you for learning, and more importantly in the future, thank you for leading. Thank you. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklewitz. I hope you enjoyed listening to this fascinating lecture. At VBM, we strive to bring you only the best in Jewish educational programming. To do this, we host a wide variety of events throughout our learning season, including panels, classes, and lectures, like the one you just listened to. Please consider going to www.valleybetmidrash.org. 
and donating to VBM to support meaningful Jewish education in the greater Phoenix Jewish community, indeed all around the country and the world. Thank you so much for listening.